I'm so thankful for those two opening hymns. They really get to the dependence that we have on the Lord to help us walk in obedience to the text that's before us tonight. So I'm thankful that we have had our hearts engaged around the truth of those hymns. We've asked the Lord as we've engaged our hearts in singing those things to really enliven us to him, to really depend on his spirit to work in our midst as we open up the word of God together. And we do pick up our study through the book of Titus, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus this evening, once again in chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please keep them open, turn them open, turn on your electronic devices at the chapter that Abe just read for us. This uh, continues our verse-by-verse study through the letter, which we started some months ago. It's also been a journey in the past few months through the qualifications that Paul has given to Titus, as Titus has been left behind on the island of Crete to do that which Paul had charged him to do before they parted ways. That was to set into order what remained in the churches on Crete, establishing proper leadership that the people of God might be led well and God would be glorified by their Godward conduct. So far in our, verse, our study of verses 5 through 7, we've seen that a man appointed to leadership in the church has to be above reproach. This is a non-negotiable moral qualification for a man who is appointed to the task of leading God's church. The text, you'll recall, and we've said this a couple of times, says that he must be, not should be or could be if you could find no other person, but must be above reproach. It requires him to be faithfully devoted to his own wife if he is married, faithfully devoted to lovingly leading his children if he has them in the ways of the Lord. To borrow the language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, a man appointed to that privileged position of an elder in the church must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Why is that? For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, here's Paul's rhetorical question, How will he care for God's church? So in looking at verse 7 last time, we found that there were several character traits that must be absent from the servant of God. His His life must be marked from a trajectory away from the behaviors and underlying attitudes that were listed in verse number 7. He must be a model to those that he leads in the church He must have made progress in putting off those moral characteristics in verse 7. And what we said last time was that we're looking for spirit-enabled progress. We realize that over in 1 John chapter 1, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're liars. There is sin dwelling in us, which will indwell us, even as the Lord sanctifies us, until we're glorified. But the leader in the church... The pastor, the elder, the overseer, that's the same office, must, by the Spirit, be making progress away from those things in verse 7. This man appointed to leadership must be a model to those he leads about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. Why is that? Well, we read in first, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. 
And we turn our attention tonight to verse 8, which really continues Paul's thought through listing the qualifications for an elder. This time, instead of telling him what he needs to put off, it's telling Titus the qualifications that need to be present in the man appointed to eldership. If he is to be deemed qualified for that position of elder in a church, these are the things that we'll see tonight that need to be present and increasing in that man's life. Whereas before we identified behaviors categorized as works of the flesh, now we're going to hold before us those things that are works of the spirit that need to be present and increasing in his life. From our text tonight, verse 8, I want us to see plainly that God's plan for God's man, that one appointed to be the pastor of a church, is that he be a model of godliness. He must be a model of godliness. The list of character qualities demanded by our text tonight for elders and the people that they lead require that a person look dramatically different from personalities in the world. There ought to be a stark contrast between the man of God and the world in which he ministers. Therefore, there ought to be a stark contrast between the people being led by that faithful man of God And the people in the community who are unsaved, there needs to be a stark contrast between the church and the world. When we view that in, or when we view the the instructions that Paul gives Titus in view of the message of the whole letter, that becomes clear to us. We ought to be adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. We ought to be putting on evangelistic display the transforming glory of God our Savior through our transformed lives. That starts in the leadership of the church, and it trickles down as the Spirit works to point people to Christ through that man in the pulpit. That's what I want us to see from our text tonight. If we're going to win our unsaved family members, if we're going to win our neighbors, our co-workers, to Christ, then we must walk the walk, walking Christianly, as we remain obedient to the Great Commission, to talk the talk, to give that gospel message. Our manner of living and our message must go hand in hand. As we consider the requirement for the pastor to be a model of godliness I want us to be challenged where we need to be challenged, but I also want us to be encouraged to continue to pursue those things that God has already worked in us by his grace. And we will be challenged tonight. That's the nature of God's word, isn't it? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It tears us down, and by God's spirit, the word of God builds us back up to be the people that we ought to be before him. I'm going to read our text, and we'll jump right in, and we'll look at verse number 8. Let me take us back to verse number 5, so that we can take a run-up and and, uh, really follow Paul's line of thinking. So he says this to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So the text before us, verse number 8, holds forth six characteristics 
that must mark the man of God if he is to be faithful and qualified for the ministry as a pastor. The first word that I will call your attention to in verse number 8 is the very first word of the sentence, the word but. This is called a conjunction, and it connects verses 7 and 8 to establish an extremely important contrast that we ought never to lose. It establishes a contrast, as we said, between the things that have to be absent in that man's life and the things that he needs to be pursuing as the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in his life. Sometimes in, in older books you might read that we're to mortify sin. We got to put to death those things that we said from verse number 7, and we want to vivify holiness. We want to bring to life those things that we're to pursue as God works in us. To use more contemporary language, we say we're going to put these uh, wicked things off, and we're going to put these other things on. Putting off, putting on. We're to pursue growth in holiness in that manner. Paul is saying that these men should not be marked by arrogance or quick-temperedness or drunkenness or violence or greedy for gain, verse 8, but by the things that come from the Spirit's work within him. Everybody needs to see that contrast that is established by our word but. And first off in the list of godly qualities in a man qualified for pastoral ministry is that he be hospitable. See it there in verse 8. He must be hospitable. Now, as you think of what a hospitable person might be like, what his character might be, you might say that he is friendly, he's welcoming, he's sociable, he's gracious, he's just a nice guy to be around. I think that's a valid thing to say. He's definitely not quarrelsome, he's not a bully of a person, he's obviously not pursuing those things, those works of the flesh that he's called to put off. Nor is it a person who is set on pleasing himself. He's not always interested in himself and only himself. He's not plainly interested in using what God has given him for his own ends. Last time we connected these things in verse 7, the things that he's called to put off, with the term self-service or self-exaltation. That category is not compatible with biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is not compatible with a mind that is set on building my own kingdom and using the things of God and the things that God has given me exclusively for myself. No, a truly hospitable person loves God and loves others more than himself to the point that he is willing to serve rather than be served. Now, I do want us to be careful here because it is possible to be hospitable with very self-centered motives. Because of the corruptive motives of our hearts, it is possible to be hospitable in a very self-serving way. Scripture calls us away from that. But true godly hospitality takes what gifts the Lord has given to us and it uses them to advance the kingdom of God. Biblical hospitality demonstrates sacrifice even toward those who are, let's say, unlovable, considered unlovely, considered hard to love. It compels us, it draws us to love people that are not like us. 
You can think, based on what we just read in Titus chapter 1, from even verses 10 to 16, that in the context of Titus's ministry on Crete, there were people known on Crete by Paul's testimony for their laziness and their lies and their commitment to live out evil. That was the ministry context that Titus would find himself in. So a man fit for ministry needed to be an example of Jesus Christ, who is what? A friend of sinners, willing to open up his home to people who he's trying to win to Christ out of a love and a commitment to that person as he seeks to hold forth the love of God for all humanity. This man, the one appointed to ministry, would have to recognize firstly that all that he owns comes from the Lord anyway, and he's to steward it in a way that brings glory to God through being hospitable. He would also have to be humble enough to recognize that apart from the grace of God, this minister is absolutely no different from the unsaved relatives, the unsaved neighbors, even the less sanctified believers in his midst. He's got to have a good theology of sin that says, apart from the Grace of God, I'd be no different from the person that I'm trying to serve. So whether that neighbor was another sinner saved by grace or one of those lazy, lust-filled liars he was trying to reach for the gospel, he was to demonstrate grace-saturated biblical hospitality. Now, as I've said, I think it's very easy for us to be hospitable to those who are like us, isn't it? We have common ground. It's a lot easier to get along with someone that you spend a lot of time with. You have common interests, maybe even Christian interests. Where we tend to fall short is to humble ourselves to welcome the less lovable people that come across our paths. People that we don't know, people, people that we don't typically choose to associate with. In some cases, if we examine our hearts closely enough, we might even harbor some resentment to tho- toward those people with whom we tend to disagree. We might have family members who have a polar opposite view of the world and God's working in it. Perhaps we would be tempted towards some self-righteous judgmentalism toward those with whom we disagree. May God rebuke us. May God rebuke us and grow us out of that self-righteousness. As Christians, we ought to be known as the most hospitable people in our neighborhoods, willing to share what we have with them, even when it is hard for us financially, even when it is hard for us from a time perspective, even if it's an inconvenience, somebody knocks at your door, I need help. James warns us against ministering to them in a very shallow way by just praying for them and saying, well, I'll be praying and we close the door. Let let that not be true of us. We want to be hospitable people. Now, Rosaria Butterfield is an excellent model for us in this regard. In the preface to her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says this, and she's talking about what she considers radically ordinary hospitality. That is, hospitality that should mark us as believers. This should be just radically ordinary. She says this, those who live it, that radically ordinary hospitality, see strangers and neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil. What does that word mean? They are repulsed by. They would, they would hate to think on reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. 
Hear this sentence well. Because we've talked about having a good theology of sin. How do we think about ourselves? The people who practice biblical hospitality know they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. We're really no different at the heart level, but for the grace of God. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. That's really quite a radical perspective, a convicting perspective, isn't it? On biblical hospitality. And I suppose that in what I'm about to say, I could be accused of laying too heavy a burden on us. Laying too heavy a burden on you as Emmanuel Baptist Church and me as a fellow member. Because all of us are required to practice this hospitality. I understand that not everyone in every field or station in life at every time in their life can practice the hospitality that Rosaria Butterfield just described. But I do want to ask us, are we doing anything with what the Lord has given to us that we might advance his kingdom? Are we opening up our homes, planning weekly, monthly, whatever the time period, to open up our homes, to bring people in, fellow members in the church, to encourage them, to reach unsaved family and friends through what the Lord would have us do in our homes? Do we have so much of a focus on how much work it would be for us that we just choose to leave it to others? We have become accustomed to this pattern in Titus so far. The call to hospitality starts at the church leadership. It starts for those who are elders, pastors. But Paul says to all believers in Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Peter agrees, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the author of Hebrews really expands our vision when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We're called to model godliness through our hospitality. That's all well and good. I'd like to touch on and think on what should motivate us to be hospitable before we move on. I would like to suggest that how we have been served by the Lord Jesus Christ is what should motivate us to serve and be be hospitable in a biblical way. He, as the eternal Son of God, became poor for us, took on the form of a servant that we might be served by him, and that is what should compel us to be biblically hospitable. J.I. Packer, uh, in his book, Knowing God, dedicates a whole chapter to the incarnation and the wonder of it, but he gives some very practical explanation. The incarnation is God taking on human flesh, coming into the world and dwelling with sinners, And he refers to what he calls the Christmas spirit in light of the incarnation, God taking on flesh, which he says ought to mean that, ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. He's talking about Jesus there, taking on the form of a servant. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. Listen with me as he 
goes on and says the following. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, and he says, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish or perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, bringing it back to Jesus Christ, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. Again, that's a convicting statement of how Biblical, Christ-centered, God-glorifying hospitality should look. So that's Packer on what should motivate us to be biblical and hospitable. It really enlarges our vision of hospitality, doesn't it? And it really goes in line with what the underlying meaning of that word hospitable is. It means lover of strangers. To be a lover of strangers is what the pastor is called to be. And by extension, a lover of strangers is what the church is to be. As we think that through, what changes do you and I need to make in our lives this week in the way that we perhaps spend our money, in the way that we spend our time, in the way that we organize our schedules, such that we would cultivate this godly characteristic of hospitality in our lives for the glory of God. We'll go on in verse 8 and we'll look at the next godly character quality. You'll be glad to know that I'm not going to spend as much time on the remaining points. Paul says that the man appointed to eldership must be a lover of good. Whereas his hospitality is a love for strangers... This characteristic represents a love for good in contrast to that which is a love for evil. These are moral categories. Danny Burke is a commentator who says this, Virtue is not merely doing the right thing. It also involves loving the right thing. Our hearts need to be changed to love that which is good, which then compels us to pursue doing what is good. It starts in the heart first, doesn't it? We can't do what is good unless we first love what is good. That, as we know, can only come by one who has been born again, the one in whom the Spirit dwells. The fruit of the Spirit produces righteous fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 22 and following, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And to have a love for Good requires that miraculous work of God's regenerating power in our hearts. Later on in this letter, Paul will touch on how we were and what we now are as a result of God's 
regenerating work in us. He says to Titus, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, does that list of things that we were represent a love for good? No, it's an absence of that love. But, and here he begins to speak of those who now walk in newness of life, alive to God in Christ. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to to the hope of eternal life. That transition, that transformation that occurred when the Spirit came to indwell us is what empowers that love for good. Would you become a lover of good? Then ask the Lord for His Spirit to teach you what that is and give you a love for it. Thirdly, in verse number 8, we see that a man appointed eldership must be self-controlled. The underlying word in the Greek is translated in various other ways in English translations using the word sensible or prudent. And so it really gives us the idea that the man exhibiting this characteristic is guided by good sense and thoughtfulness. He's seeking to think through what God would have him to do in any given circumstance. This man weighs the consequences of his actions and inactions, thinking, what would God have me do here that I might be self-controlled? You remember when we looked at what the qualification of a pastor was with regards to his family life, he was seeking to lead his children away from the lifestyle of insubordination and debauchery, that lifestyle which really manifested a complete disregard for what would happen if he did or didn't do these things. So the pastor, in contrast to that debauched and insubordinate manner of living, is to be self-controlled. You can imagine how important that is when he is opposed by various people. He's trying to teach the gospel and all of its ethical considerations how people should live in light of those truths that they're being taught. People come against him and rail against him, and he has to think through in that self-controlled, spirit-led manner, Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to be gentle and respectful and to hold forth your truth in this situation? One commentator says, whatever the theological, ethical, or interpersonal issue, so whatever situation he's ministering in, Whether public or private, the advisability for a church leader being steady and dependable, not at the mercy of pressures external to himself, is self-evident. What is he saying? It makes good sense that the man leading the church would know how to think things through under the Spirit's control, that he might be self-controlled and glorify God in his conduct. We should expect that of those appointed to leadership in the church. The man's conduct must reflect the sober-minded manner of living that is expected of every mature believer. Exercising that self-control in the way that we just described will inevitably pair with the next characteristic that we see in verse 8. That is that he must be upright. He must be upright. He is a righteous man, one who lives according to God's law. So having been declared righteous 
by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He now, having been transformed by the Spirit, is to be living upright. He sets God's standard of righteousness for his own standard of righteousness. He pursues that way of living no matter what the cost. God's standard of righteousness is his standard of righteousness. A man characterized by uprightness stands out in a society full of people who are walking in the opposite direction. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll recall perhaps that Timothy is warned that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Do you not think that one who walks uprightly in an environment full of people like we've just described would stand out for God's glory? The man of God is called to walk uprightly and stand out amidst the godlessness that he ministers among. Closely related to being upright, we see next in verse number 8 that this man called to ministry must be holy. Now this speaks to his personal piety, his being pious, his being devoted to God. This is not piety in that holier-than-now self-righteous, judgmentalistic kind of way. That is forbidden because he's told not to be arrogant. Rather, it is a sincere devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, a sincere devotion to bring glory to God in his life. He's called to be holy. He's called to be set apart to please God. He's called to be devoted to serving God above all else, ever growing in that true righteousness and holiness that Ephesians 4.24 calls us to as God works powerfully in him. This is a personal devotion to God. This is exactly what he's been set apart to do to lead the people of the church in that same direction. If you've ever read Jerry Bridges' book, The Practice of Godliness, you might remember that three-sided triangle. Well, obviously it's three-sided, it's a triangle. That three-part model of qualities that are necessary for a person to be devoted to God. There's firstly the desire for God, secondly a fear of God, and thirdly a love for God. Missing one of those three elements, a man cannot be truly considered to be devoted to God. Desire for God, a fear of God, and a love for God. If that is true, and I believe that Jerry Bridges is right in what he says, then what I'm about to say should be obvious But I think it needs to be said. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the obvious things. You and I cannot grow in our desire for God, in our fear of God, that loving, reverential awe of God. We cannot grow in our love for God unless we first open the word of God and study who he is, what he has done for us, what his promises hold out for us. We need to be students of the word of God if we are not growing in our knowledge of God. If we're not studying God's word regularly with the goal of knowing him, of loving him, of becoming like him in his character, in serving him by being useful to him, something in our lives needs to change. That needs to be a priority in our lives. It needs to be priority first because the leader sets the example. 
That's got to be evident in my life. I'm called to study myself approved. I need to know this God. And I need to lead you to do the same. I want to take this further. Because I want to, I'm, I'm assuming and I've seen evidence of this. I love to see the fact that many of you are involved in making disciples, causing others to grow up into the image and likeness of Christ by spending time with those and opening up God's word with them. This applies to all of my fellow disciple makers, which I hope is all of you in some degree. Given that the leadership in the church is expected to model being in the word and growing and loving God. The people that we lead must also be on that same trajectory. Therefore, the people who we are discipling are not allowed to slack off in that area. We ought to be very, very concerned when the people that we come alongside are okay with not being in God's word. We, ought, we, we must come alongside the people that we're coming alongside and gently nudge them to pursue the things of God. If we would see people grow, we need to insist that those we help make special effort, as we are, to know God and become like Him. We need to insist, because there's this devotion to God in mind, that they repent of specific sins and pursue holy living daily. As elders, as leaders in the church, as disciple makers, we need to be students of the word ourselves. and We need to be calling people, even warning and admonishing them as necessary to be pursuing a devotion to God. Now that's not popular in a world that celebrates sin, is it? That's not popular when the person that you're talking to isn't particularly engaged as you might be in learning the things of God, but it's still our responsibility as those who shepherd the hearts of others to come alongside and nudge them in the direction of devotion to God. The leader in the church, those being led, are called to be holy, devoted to God. There's one last character quality in our text tonight that we must see in a man before he is appointed and as he remains appointed to the office of an elder. That is, he must be disciplined. We see that in verse 8. He must be disciplined. It appears elsewhere in other translations as self-control. This speaks of having one's emotions, impulses, or desires under the Spirit's control. Again, Jerry Bridges is remarkably helpful here. He says, self-control is control of oneself. It is probably best defined as the governing of one's desires. It's the ability to avoid excesses, to stay within reasonable bounds. And who sets those bounds for the Christian? It is God in his word. It is the healthful regulation of our desires and appetites, preventing their excess. Both of these descriptions imply what we all know to be true. We have a tendency to overindulge our various appetites and consequently need to restrain them. We don't do that in our own strength. The Spirit of God must work within us to do that. So this discipline is the moral quality of a man who, by the Spirit's power, is able, for example, to hold his tongue in an argument. Things are getting heated, and he can hold back his passions to be right all of the time, even this time, and say, no, I don't need to engage this time. I can exercise 
self-control. I can exercise this discipline that the Lord has me disciplined to. He's able to remain emotionally stable under pressure. He's seeking to please the Lord when he's opposed by patiently teaching and gently correcting those who stand firmly opposed to him. Think of it in other terms. Whether it be one more cookie or one more mouse click, this man is able to say no to the things that God would have him say no to and yes to the things that God would have him say yes to. Why is that? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is the result of the Spirit's work in his life because Jesus Christ came into the world to save him. Jesus Christ is transforming him by his grace and therefore he says no to this and yes to this. Self-control, that discipline is the mark of a man who through much practice with reliance on the Lord to strengthen him is able to apply the gospel to renounce, to put off the things that he's called away from and to pursue and practice the things that he's called to. And how encouraging that because the grace of God has appeared, that is possible that he can turn away from sin and pursue the things of Christ. What a wonder that God enables us to do that by his Spirit. Godliness is possible for everyone for whom Christ is Lord and Savior. That's so encouraging. So there we see an elder in the church must be disciplined. He must be able to control his passions. Now, we've considered these six things tonight. That's a lot. I want to tie a bow on it. And I want, us to help, uh, I want to help us think clearly about how on earth do we get there? What we've seen tonight is that a man appointed to eldership must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And I did give my summary about what the main point was as we began. Let me say it again. God's plan for God's man is for him to be a model of godliness to those that he leads. And because I, as one of your pastors, am charged with the responsibility of leading you toward those godly uh, attitudes and actions, my life must be marked increasingly by those things. That is very clear from this text. I need you to hold me accountable to those things. It follows also that you who are being led by the leadership of Emmanuel Baptist Church are being called tonight to make hospitality, a love of good, self-control, uprightness, holiness, and discipline a necessary part of your Christian lives. Now let me ask you, as you think of those things that we're being called to put on tonight, do you find those attractive? Are those beautiful things to you? Do you look at hospitality and a love of good and self-control and uprightness and holiness and discipline? Do you look at those things and long after them? I want you to be encouraged if those are things that you desire. Be encouraged tonight. That is a sign of the Spirit of God working in you to desire those things. We might say that you, if you desire those things, are already a lover of good. Praise the Lord. The question I would want to address as we close is, 
how we make progress in those things. Because if we really desire them, if we want to put those things off that we've been called away from, if we want to pursue the things of God, if we want our lives to be marked by devotion to him and in serving others as we have been served, then how do we get there? If you want one day to serve as a pastor or make progress as one, if you desire to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ as one who sits in the pew tonight, then what is the key to progress? Last time we camped on the idea of putting off ungodliness and walking by the Spirit, didn't we? I want to add another important biblical consideration, which is to suggest that as we gaze upon the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, He, by His Spirit, will continue to transform us to bear the righteous fruit that only He can produce in our lives. If we would become models of godliness, we must be transformed, according to what Paul says, by one degree of glory to another. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, when he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is, God is changing us to reflect Christ's character incrementally. Sometimes it seems imperceptible, doesn't it? But incrementally, he is changing us from one degree of glory to another as we ourselves set before us the glory of Jesus Christ. This comes from the Lord. So we must ask him to do that work in us. And he will. We're responsible to behold the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory as we learn about and strive to put off the things that he hates and learn about and strive to put on the things that he loves that mark his own character. So if you feel the sting of conviction because you have been found wanting in the area of hospitality or any of the other qualities that we've discussed tonight, then respond please as you should. Confess those sins, those shortcomings, that selfishness in your heart, confess that to him and repent of it. That's an important step in our transformation, isn't it? But don't lose sight of the fact that you need to behold God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ and cry out to him that he would transform you further into his image. Behold Christ's glory and grace revealed in his death on the cross for you. That death and subsequent resurrection, which proves that the sins that you've sinned are dealt with. Those things are forgiven on the basis of what Christ has done. That selfishness is covered by the blood of Christ. Isn't that incredible? That he would die for our sins, knowing full well that we would sin those sins as he seeks to transform us by his grace. Our sins, as we sing, are many. His mercy is more. Your lack of self-control and all of the anger or worry that flow out of making life all about yourself are forgiven because Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave. As you struggle to make progress in walking with consistency in uprightness and holiness, know that Christ died and rose again to take the penalty for your sins and set you free from the power of those sins such that there is hope for you to be changed into his image. 
Would that we would revel in the grace of Jesus Christ that is capable of transforming even the worst of sinners. Then we have to gaze at him. Then we have to stare at him. Love him for how he served us when we were at our worst. Be amazed at his love for good as he perfectly did the will of God, his Father. Consider that his ways are pure. He was always heavenly minded, seeking to do the best, which is to obey our heavenly Father, where we have so often fallen short. Gaze at his glory. Consider how his thoughts are always pure. Drink in his example. Revel in his perfect uprightness. Consider how holy Christ is, how he was disciplined that he might do the will of God. Would you become like him? Is that a desire in your heart tonight? This, as we've said, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Cry out to the Spirit and ask him to transform you into Christ. God must work this change in us, but we must be faithful to turn away from sin and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We must pursue these things that we might put on display his goodness and his grandeur and his holiness and his beauty. We've been called tonight to be models of godliness. We've seen what is required of us and at least in part how to get there. Be encouraged tonight that this change is possible. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let us be sure to ask him to work these things in us. I'm going to do that right now on our behalf. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and how clear it directs us into the ways of holiness. God, we've heard tonight that the change that you desire in us can only come from you. And we plead with you. We ask that you would transform us by one degree of glory to another. We need your spirit to work in our midst as we examine ourselves before your word, Lord. We're so thankful that you have given us this calling. We're so thankful that you didn't leave us in our sin. We're so thankful that by your grace, according to your mercy, we have been made new. But we recognize that we live this life now dependent on your spirit to turn away from the sins that we've learned about last time and to put on those things that we've been called to from verse 8 this evening. God, I hear this call in my life as a leader in the church. These are high and holy things to put on in my life, and I ask you to work them into my life. Make me a man of God that I would be an example to the saints of Emmanuel Baptist Church, that they too would walk in obedience to this text and bring glory to you, our God, who is capable of taking the worst of sinners and transforming us by your grace. God, be glorified as we apply these things to our lives, as we think about what it means to be hospitable, as we desire that love for good and pursue the things of goodness in our lives, as we seek to put on holiness and uprightness and self-control and discipline, Lord, watch over us and guide us, work powerfully in our midst through your spirit that we as a church would glorify your high and holy name. We're thankful to know you as our God. We're thankful that you are not done with us yet. We're so thankful for your work in our hearts. Continue that good work now as we 
uh, continue to worship you this time through song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Abe. Challenge from God's Word. Uh, Our first song that we will sing tonight is the first of three. The first being, If You Will Only Let God 